0: Hey Podcast listener, Are you a hacker, techie, nerd, investor, founder, or ever wanted to get into this world? Join TechCrunch for its annual Disrupt Conference in San Francisco, featuring the luminaries who aren’t only
1: making the rules in technology, but changing the game. Get a first look at
0: startups disrupting machine learning, mobility, healthcare, robotics, and more, and hear from the world’s leading investors and innovators. Visit TechCrunch.com
1: and use promo code SPREAKER. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R
2: for an exclusive discount. Yeah, yeah, old school. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, this ain't for everybody. Some of y'all need to hear it. I know you're in the trenches fighting, but so check it out. I'm going to put it down like this so I can help the things so understand. Everything you're going through is all part of the master plan. What? You thought because you got saved, everything was gonna be peaches and cream? You better wake up, son. Don't nothing come to a sleep of what I drink. Faith without work is dead. Read your Bible, you know what it said. He who don't work, don't eat. Blackers don't get fed. Huh? Yeah, Jesus said, He who puts his hands to the plow looks back, to same make fit. Some of y'all ain't been in the switch five minutes and you about ready to quit? I ain't mad at ya, I'm just hitting you with the real. Huh? If you die for me I was still tripping, now how you think that make you feel? Check this out, Deep Game. This is Deep, huh? Some of y'all ain't sawing nothing but your study trying to reach him But after him who's able to position your father's by his glory. Struggle might be part of your testimony, but it ain't the end of the story. Now the point is that it was prophesied way back in the day. Choir, sing your hook right here and see if the church can relate. I know. You you say why you? But you shirt say what would Jesus do? Why you asking if he ain't tryna do what he's saying, huh? He told you he was gonna have tribulations, but you thought he was playing, huh? One minute you tell her how good God is, it ain't nobody bit to talk.
3: Welcome to the show, everyone. We're gonna pump the brakes right there. It's my good friend Praise Master G. And I just thought we'd give a little bit to big boy upstairs. It's my belief that, you know, he gave us this stay anyway. Hope that's yours too. We have a great show lined up for you today. We have this gentleman, Mr. David C. Barnett. is going to give us some enlightenment on how he does all the wonderful things he do and this wonderful thing that we call business. Let me see if he's with us. Mr. Barnett, are you with us?
1: Yeah, I'm here, Lamont. How are you today?
3: Oh, man, I'm fantastic. How are you today, sir?
1: Doing great. It's beautiful, sunny weather here. And uh, it's just you can't help but smile on a day like that.
3: You must be in the Bahamas.
1: No, <laughs> actually I'm in Canada.
3: <laughs> it's still
1: warm and sunny today. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's that's wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Mr. Barnett, give me a second and let me introduce you. Okay. And uh, we can get cracking. Today we have David C. Barnett. Uh, Mr. Barnett loves to say that it took him 10 years to unlearn what he was taught in business school. university had trained him to be a middle manager in big enterprise. He was totally unprepared for the realities of small business, and I can relate to that. After a career in advertising sales, Mr. Barnett started several businesses, including commercial debt brokerage, helped to finance small and medium-sized businesses, led to the field of business brokerage. Over several years, Mr. Barnett sold dozens of business for others while also managed his own portfolio of income properties and started his career as a local private investor. Mr. Barnett also regularly consults with professionals and banks on business and asset values. Presently, he works as a private transaction advisor with people around the world who are buying or selling a business. He's also an author, invests local, a guide to superior investment returns in your own community and how to sell my own business, a guide to selling your own business privately and not to pay a broker's commission. And franchise warnings. What you really need to know before you buy. Welcome, sir.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. It's great to be here, Lamont.
3: Oh man, it's great. It's great to have you. I'm sure it's uh our listeners could definitely, definitely learn a wealth of I gain, I see, I gain a wealth of information from you, and hopefully somebody somewhere, somewhere takes something away that can actually enhance their lives.
1: Well, you know, my whole career has been about working with people who are in business, and and you know, if you look at statistics about the people who are wealthy versus the people who are not, it is extremely difficult to become wealthy if you're employed in a job. The, the The path to wealth and having resources and in order to do what you want to do in life and make the impact that you want to make, you know you can help feed a lot of people if you have the money and the way that you get money in this world is by creating value for other people, and that's called business and so if anyone out there really wants to give back and make an impact the the way to do it is through business ownership and for you know, in my career, what I've consistently be tell- been telling people is that it's actually faster, easier, cheaper, and less risky to get into business by buying one than it is to start a business, because the rate of failure for new businesses is so incredibly high.
3: Wow, that's interesting. That is interesting. Well, how would you say? Let's. How would you say one would start out? Uh, you know. How would I go about buying a business?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the 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 way that most people buy a business, Lamont, is what I call the window window shopping method. And they what they do is they go onto some websites and maybe they contact a business broker in their community and they ask what's for sale and they start to look at, at what opportunities are there. And the problem with that is that 80% of businesses that trade hands do so privately, meaning they don't go can through a broker.
3: Uh, Mr. Barnett, can I ask you a question right there? I have these brain for it sure. sometimes. Uh, when a person, uh, I know that's the how to buy a business. Is it necessary for uh, one to have any knowledge of the business, the detailed business that, he's, that he wishes to buy? Or is he just well, buying a business because it seemed like a good investment. Does that make sense?
1: No. When when you buy a business, you're doing two things, Lamont. You're
3: you're making an investment,
1: but in most cases, you're also buying yourself a job, because right. most of the businesses that we're talking about are smaller businesses. And and so if you don't have an interest, passion, or even a curiosity about a given field, you know, if you have no interest whatsoever in automobiles then it probably wouldn't make sense for you to get into an auto related business. Right. And so you have to be aware of where your strengths are and, and, your interests so that you'll be able to be engaged and have an interest in, in whatever it is, the business that you do, because it's going to become your full-time concern, both on and off the field, so to speak, it's going to be your concern while you're at work. And for most business owners, even when they go home at night, they're still thinking about the business. So it can't be something that's going to drive you mad because you have no interest or, or desire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to know Um, how many
3: people just went out to buy a business because you know, the numbers look good, but they had no knowledge of the business itself per se, the workings.
1: Well, back in my business broker days, I used to run into this a lot. So there was this one time I had a fried chicken franchise for sale, and the numbers were really good. The business had over a million dollars in sales, and, and the owner was earning between $150,000 and $180,000 a year in this business. And so with numbers like that, a lot of people were attracted to it. And I would get right. bank managers and people who worked in the government and you know, people, all these sort of white-collar folks would come out and look at it because they thought the numbers were so great. And the first thing I would ask them is I would say, do you have any fast food experience? And almost none of them did. And when we would meet the owner, the owner's name was Tony. I would say, Tony, why don't you describe your average day? And Tony would start off by by saying that he would arrive at the restaurant around 930 in the morning. And the first thing he had to do is rebalance the cash from the night before because quite often it didn't balance properly and he had to find the mistakes. And then he'd turn on the kitchen equipment and his employees would start to come in. And, and by 11 o'clock, he would know which of his employees simply weren't showing up that day. So he had to call the people he gave the day off to and try to convince them to come in. And, and if they wouldn't come in, it meant, guess what? He had to be in the front taking orders right. from people. And, and then once the lunch was done, they, they would start their cleaning regimen and, and then Tony would start rolling up his sleeves and showing people where he had been burnt by grease and where he had been cut by the machine that makes, you know, the French fries and things like this. And and it was about that moment that these people would start to realize that owning a fried chicken business is a lot of work, you know, and, and it's something that you got to roll up your sleeves and get into every day. And so there has to be an interest and a passion. And more than that, The business has to align with your own self-image. So if if somebody is a person who wears a suit to work every day and their idea of being in business is rubbing elbows with people down at the golf club, then there's plenty of businesses out there for them. But probably a fried chicken restaurant is not one of them.
3: Right. That's that. That's good stuff. And the reason I ask that because I'm in the entertainment business. I always hear people that may be a mechanic or in the insurance industry, and you know, in two days they want to be in the entertainment industry and they know nothing about Not it, it. For real, just know that you see people on video and on televisions and hear them on the radio, but it's different animals altogether.
1: Yeah. And and now the flip side of that coin, too, and this is a different thing to think about, is that just because you know how to do a certain job does not necessarily mean that you should be in a certain business. So my father-in-law is an auto mechanic. He's been repairing cars for over 30 years, and he owns his own shop, and he tells me all the time that the biggest threat to his business is the fact that he's a licensed mechanic because he will constantly be lured into the shop and, and the temptation is always there to pick up a wrench. And the thinking goes like this. If I do some of the work, I'll save some wages, right? I'll, I'll, I'll right. help move some of the, some of the customers through more quickly, but that's not his job as the owner of the auto repair business. His job is to be up front, talking to customers, convincing them that they should buy the new set of tires now and not wait till spring that now is the time to do the preventative maintenance, and here's why. His his job as the owner is to make sure he pushes sales, not to be turning a wrench. And, you know, there's a very famous book written about this in the world of business. It's called The E-Myth by a guy named Michael Gerber. And he talked about how so many businesses were started not by entrepreneurs, but rather by technicians. They knew how to do the work, and they figured that that qualified them to be in the, to be in the business. And the problem with that is you grow to a certain level and then you get stuck because people who are mechanics and carpenters and roofers and plumbers, they're good at their trade, but they're often not good at building policies and procedures and workflows. And, and that's the stuff you actually need in a business to help it grow. Um, I've got another good friend of mine who is not a plumber but he bought himself uh, Mr. for franchise. A
3: qu- let me ask yeah. you a question about your dad. Um, was it that he's good at wrenches and that's what he loved to do, and that might be why he had you because you're good at business?
1: Well, he's my father-in-law, so <laughs> yeah, he he he's he's a car guy, you know, like he's got little models that he collects of all these classic cars and he goes to the car shows and his, his That's passion, well. and his love That's is well. all about cars, yes. right? So, so he's in the right business, but he's got to remember that when he's in that business, he has to act like the owner and not like a mechanic. Right. And, and he, he provides more value to the business by being the owner than, than he would provide if he were acting like a mechanic. And my, my friend who owns the Mr. Reuter franchise, he's not a plumber, and and he thinks that's great because it means he can't do the work. He has okay. to spend his time building the clientele and building the brand and, and organizing the company so that the guys who know how to do the work are there on time, right, and making the customers happy.
3: That's good what he's good at then.
1: Yeah, exactly. He found,
3: he found what he's good at. Tell us um, uh, what are some of the stupid things people do when trying to buy a business?
1: Yeah, the, the you know, there's I have a, a weekly YouTube uh, video that I put out and it's all based on, on questions people ask me and, and I got a few different people ask me, what are these common mistakes? and And when I started to make a list I realized there were so many of them that that I actually wrote a book called 21 <clears throat> Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And the number one thing on top of the mall is that people forget the value of their own labor when they examine a business. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're, let's use the example of that fried chicken restaurant, okay? So if you're gonna buy the fried chicken restaurant and you're gonna work there full time as the owner manager, there's a difference between the profit the business earns because you've made a wise investment and the money or the wages you've earned by showing up every day, making the business run. And so when people look at these businesses, they very often look at this profit number and they get excited if the number is high and they say, yeah, I'm going to make a whole bunch of money if I do this. But what ends up happening is if you actually divide out, the amount of money that should be yours as a wage for doing the manager's job versus the investment—it it becomes very clear in a lot of these cases that they aren't such great investments. Once you once you back out that fair market wage. So in the case of the restaurant manager, maybe it's a thirty-five thousand or forty thousand dollar a year job. If there's money left after profit of the business, but then you have to look at that cash flow through the eye of an investor. So if you're going to spend Half a million dollars on this restaurant as an investment to earn yourself a return of, you know, 20 or 30,000 a year, that's actually not very good for a small business. Small businesses are risky and you have to earn a high rate of return in order for it to make sense to put down your money.
3: So, how do one do that? I mean, does that come with negotiating um, the price of the business?
1: What What's factored into that? Yeah, well, price is one of the biggest problems that we run into because sellers, if they're not getting proper advice from someone, will often put a price on a business that has nothing to do with the cash flow. So I've run into sellers before who've told me that they need to sell their business for a million dollars. And, and when I ask them, why do you think this business is worth a million dollars, they'll say, "Well, well, my mutual fund guy says I need a million dollars to retire. And, of course, what the mutual fund guy says they need to retire, of course, has nothing to do with the value of their business. A business's right. value is determined by its cash flow, and, and that's modified as a function of the risk in the industry. So if you have a restaurant that earns $100,000 a year and a septic pumping company, you know, they clean septic tanks out in the country, that's earning $100,000 a year, the septic company will be worth more than the restaurant even though they have the same cash flow because restaurants are riskier than septic companies. So, when I work with clients, we go through an evaluation process either if I'm working with a buyer or a seller and we figure out what the business is worth and a lot of sellers if they're not properly advised, they will bring into the equation their experience when they started the business because most of these people have started the business. So, Somebody who works like crazy for three or four years for no wages and no earnings, you know, trying to build a business, and eventually, right. and if they survive and they build it up into a successful business with a good cash flow, they think that the buyer should go through a similar experience that they went through. That a buyer should be willing to work, and you know, work hard for no money initially. And when they look at that on paper, they think, oh, here's all this cash the money the buyer is going to have available to him. pay this huge debt, but the buyers are not these risk-taking business starters. Buyers have an investment mentality. They often have money saved up, or they're going to borrow against another asset, like their home or something. So they're they're willing to risk a certain amount of capital, but they look at it from an investment mentality. They say, if I give you this $200,000, what do I then get in return?" And if the rate of return doesn't make sense, then a buyer is better off just leaving the money in the bank, right? And so right. very often we get into situations where businesses are horribly overpriced. And I've, I've seen very often where sellers were asking two to three times what the business is actually worth. And there's a few strategies that I work people through to try and negotiate with, with sellers who are like that. But the key thing to keep in mind is that nobody sells a business unless they have a pressing personal motivation. You, you hear these stories about these guys in Silicon Valley in California that sell these, these app companies for millions of dollars and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's right. like uh, you know a baseball star breaking a record. It, it's going to happen, but it's extremely rare, right? Most small businesses will sell for a couple times of the cash flow, two to three times cash flow, which means if the seller just stuck around in the business for two or three more years, they'd get the same money anyway. So nobody sells a business with this idea that they're going to cash out and get rich. They need the business to have an income until something personal happens in their life that makes them need to move on. Things like divorce, illness, the need to relocate, or a final decision that's made to retire. And when that personal motivation is there, then they need to move on to something else. And that's when a seller will actually become reasonable in their price, and you can make a deal with them.
3: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. Uh, David, let me say this right quick. Uh, For those who just joined us, we're talking to David Barnett, and we're talking about how to sell or buy a business. If you'd like to join the conversation, just press number one on your phone. We'll let you in the conversation. Not an issue. Okay. I feel better I've done that. I know, uh, 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 David, uh, you wrote a book. Invest Locally, A Guide to Superior Investment, in your community. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What are the yeah, advantages?
1: Sure. In, invest Local is a book that I wrote where I describe and teach people how I actually invest my own money. So I have I have a problem making investments in things like mutual funds and or stocks where you're basically trusting f- people who are far off on – Wall Street or what have you to make these decisions to, to run these companies successfully. I would much rather have most of my money securely saved away in, in deposit certificates in the bank and then take part of my money and earn a really great rate of return. Okay, And the way that I do that is exactly the same way that banks do. When I was a finance broker, I used to help entrepreneurs secure loans for equipment and, and real estate and, and operating capital loans for their businesses and things. And I watched how the banks and the leasing companies set up these deals so that they would never lose. So you want to buy a piece of equipment? Sure, they'll lend you some money, but you've got to have a down payment. And, of course, they're protected because if you don't pay the loan, they'll, they'll get that piece of equipment and they'll sell it off and they'll recapture their money that way. And it's completely possible for everyday people like you and me to invest our money exactly the same way and earn far better returns than you can. And, not, and I'm not talking about lending money to people who have poor credit scores or are risky borrowers. Let me give you an example. Um, small business owner wants a piece of equipment. He talks to his local banker. Maybe he's told uh, they'll lend him money at 8% or 9% interest. Okay. If I deposit my money at the bank, I'm lucky if I get paid 1%, right? Right. So if I say to that business owner, look, why don't you let me do this loan for you and we'll secure it the same way the bank does and instead of 8 or 9% interest, I'll only charge you 7 Does that sound like a good deal for you? And it, it means that the small business owner gets to save money. But it means, Lamont, that I'm earning seven times the rate of return that I would if I just put my money on deposit at the bank. And I already know, right. because the bank's willing to do the loan, that the person is not a risky credit risk. And I can structure the deal in exactly the same way the bank would. And I can register a lien against the equipment or, or property. Um, or to take it even a step further, if I'm concerned about security, I can do a lease instead of a loan where I actually hold title to the, whatever the security is until all the payments are made. And in my own personal life, I've usually got between four and six of these deals going at any given time. And um, it, it works out wonderfully for me.
3: How do you go about? about, Excuse me, I'm sorry. How do you go about qualifying these people? I mean, do you do the same? Go through the same procedure? You know, do a credit check and do all that stuff too. uh,
1: You can, but my number one golden rule is that making the loan or lease to the company has to improve the company, because your ultimate security is their profitability and the cash flow that they have in that business. So let me give you an example of a deal that I did. There were some guys who were redoing garage floors and they were doing these nice epoxy floor coatings and they had to prepare the garage floor with this special piece of grinding equipment. They would grind off a layer of, of the concrete. And these guys were doing well in their sales, but they were renting a piece of this grinding equipment, sometimes five or six times a month. And they were spending seven, eight hundred dollars a month renting this piece of equipment. Well, they came to me and they said, Look, we can buy this thing for sixty five hundred dollars. What what would the financing look like? And I was able to do a deal for them where they were paying me about two hundred and fifty dollars a month on this loan, which meant that their cash flow improved. By making the investment in this company, I improved their cash flow by up to $500 a month because they were now saving money on these rental payments. So that's what I look for. If I can make an investment in this company and it will improve the company and make it stronger, then that's the best way for me to protect my investment. Right. And, you know, I registered a lien against the equipment so that if they didn't pay me, the equipment would eventually would come back to me. And I don't always make the business people sign a guarantee for the loan, but what I do make them sign is a personal guarantee that if they miss a payment, they'll return the equipment to me. Because if they then don't return the equipment to me, I can at least take some legal action against them to get the equipment. But but here's the big difference between um, lending money privately versus, you know, the regular banking system When someone has a hard time in business and they can't afford to make their payments if things aren't going well, they're far more likely to skip a payment with a bank than they are to skip a payment from the guy that they know in their town who they run into, right, a real person. And so whenever I've had – what's that?
3: No, I did hear you say if they miss a payment.
1: Yeah, equipment so, comes so, back. yeah, if if the, if the they miss payments, the equipment comes back, but
3: if oh, somebody was in trouble. I thought, you said a, I thought you said a payment at first, so I was going to say, oh, okay, <laughs> they miss one payment, and stuff comes back. I guess that would well, motivate them not to miss a payment.
1: Yeah, you know, it depends how the deal is structured, but usually – if somebody is late on a payment, I'm talking to them. And here's right. the other second golden rule is, is I don't lend money to people who I'm not somehow connected to through other people. right? right? Okay. And so that's why the book is called Invest Local, because every one of my deals is done within a 30-minute drive of my home. And everyone that comes to me to, to do one of these deals, they come to me typically through someone else. Or if not, we, we typically know people in common. So I can call those people and it's the old fashioned character check that a banker used to do, you know, 50 years ago in a small town.
3: Yeah. So, so everybody knows somebody that knows somebody. Yeah. Everybody's connected.
1: Yeah. And so you can make better returns on your money and you can have your money stay in your own community and help the businesses that are in your own town and help create jobs in your own town while you earn far more money for yourself than you would just putting your money into some kind of retail investment at the bank. And and that's the whole gist of invest local really.
3: And, and, and where can our listeners uh, get that?
1: So, um, from my blog site, which is davidcbarnett.com. They can buy the PDF version of it there, or they can get it on Amazon, and it's available as a paperback, and they can also get it for their Kindle readers, too. Um, all of my books are available on, on Kindle, and, uh, you know, the, I, I think the vast majority actually of, of my readers are, are actually doing it through Kindle, because it's so wonderful these days when you when you cut out the cost of printing a book and Nailing the book and all the distribution, you know everyone gets to save, um, right? And you get it right away, you know. As soon as you, as <laughs> soon as you decide to purchase it, bang, you
3: got it. So, uh, David, tell us what do you think about franchises? Um,
1: you know, when I was a business broker, I handled the sale of a lot of different franchises and some of the things that I saw really turned my stomach. Some of the things I watched people go through. And I was complaining to someone about franchises one day and they said, well, why don't you, you know, let people know about this? Cause I don't think people know about some of the dangers of this type of business model. And I went and I looked on Amazon and, and it was true. There were literally dozens or maybe even a hundred books on Amazon about how to pick the right franchise business. And there weren't, any that I could find that warned people of some of the problems. So I wrote franchise warnings in 2015. And what I did is I I go through and I tell the different stories of the experiences that I went through as a business broker, where I was helping people buy new franchises. I was helping people sell a franchise business and, and helping other people buy those established franchises. And I've seen some really awful things and I've also seen some good things because when I was a business broker, my business brokerage was a, was a franchise. And in in my particular case, my franchisor delivered value to me every month. So I had online systems which were connected directly to the different online business for sale advertising sites And if I had gone out as an independent business broker and bought all that stuff for myself, I would have spent almost twice as much as I was spending on franchise fees. So I got training, guidance, advice, and saved money by being a part of my franchise. So there are some really great opportunities in franchises. Some of the things that I've seen that are really awful are people who, let me me tell you a story about a coffee shop franchise. This this guy came to me, he wanted to know what his business was worth. I did an analysis of the cash flow, and I told him his little coffee franchise was probably worth about $130,000. His lease was coming to an end, and he wanted to know what he wanted to do. He was trying to make a decision about selling it or closing it or what. The franchisor told him that if he sold it, they would require a look and feel update. So they would want the new decor package put in. And that was going to be about a $100,000 investment.
3: Wait, wait so I had wait, to explain
1: wait. to this it, guy Wait
3: wait mm-hmm. If he, wait if okay. he sold it, they would want him to do something?
1: Yes, because franchisors control these, these uh, deals, these transactions. so uh. the franchisor can say to him, "If you sell it, we need you to update the decor of the store." Before you transfer it, well, the investment for the decor upgrade was a hundred thousand dollars. So I had to explain to this guy that his business was only worth about thirty grand, because it didn't matter where the money went—if it went into his pocket or it went to a contractor to do the fit-ups—the cash flow associated with the restaurant is only worth a hundred, hundred thirty grand. So the franchisor's rules made his business worth less. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to close it. And the franchisor said, well, here's what we'll do. They decided that they wanted to take it over as a corporate store. So they bought his inventory from him. Okay. They put a manager in there and they started to run it. And then they went looking for somebody to buy it and take it over as a franchise. And they sold it to someone else for over $100,000, and they did not require the new person to do the decor improvements. <laughs> so so this, this, this guy built a business that was worth about one hundred thirty grand that he ended up handing to them for nothing, and then they turned around and sold it for over 100000 that they put in their pocket because they control the deal. And in my book, Franchise Warnings, I repeat over and over again that when you own a franchise or you invest in a franchise, you don't actually own a business, you're renting one. It's exactly the same as if you're in an apartment versus owning the house. When you're in the apartment, you know, you got to go and ask if you're allowed to paint the wall, you got to go and ask, you know, whatever you want to do in that apartment, you got to ask the owner, right? And when you're in a franchise, everything has to be blessed by that franchise or I had deals fall apart. Here's another little one that, that, that people, especially people that don't have a lot of experience in business, they fall victim to. That's what I call creeping fees. So usually when you have a franchise, there's a franchise fee and that might be 8%, let's say. And then you also might have what's called an advertising fee and that's the money pooled together by the franchisees in order to do things like television advertising on, on national TV, that kind of thing. And so sometimes in a franchise agreement, you might get an advertising fee. It might be 1% of sales, but after the third year, it goes to 2%. And most people just gloss right over that. And they figure, Oh, 1%, that's not a lot. Let's just imagine if you have a business, that does a million dollars in sales and let's say that your profit out of that is $100,000 a 1% increase in your fees is going to cost you $10,000 okay now let's say that you're in an industry where businesses typically sell for two and a half times cash flow that 1% fee increase is going to cost you $10,000 a year and reduce the value of your business by $25,000 And these are the kinds of things that um, unless you are experienced in business, you won't spot in a franchise agreement. You'll read through it and you'll understand it, but you really won't understand its impact until you live through the change. And when you get to that third year and the fee goes up and you start to notice how the checks have gotten bigger, and then you realize, hey, this is like $10,000 I have to give out now. That's when you say. That's when you feel the pain. I want people to to know what the pain is going to be before they get there. That's why I wrote franchise warnings.
3: Because I didn't even know about it of that, <laughs> that you just shared.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's the franchise business model is interesting. I back in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, you know, everybody wanted to own a McDonald's, right? Because everybody knew that if you were a McDonald's owner you were gonna end up being wealthy. And I think what has happened nowadays is everybody wants to be Ray Kroc. Right? They've all they've either seen the movie or they've read the book and they say, I wanna be like the guy who is franchising McDonald's. I wanna receive money every month. And so we have we've been inundated with all of these franchise names in all these different industries Because people out there are trying to create a cash flow stream to themselves. They've got this dream of signing up a hundred people who are going to go out and work hard and mail them money every month. And in the book, what I, what I say is I say, look, you have to look for a fair exchange of value because good franchise good franchise brands, they actually do provide value to their franchisees. They have good advertising they develop good new products and services, and they, they do it in a way and to a degree and in a fashion that local small business people could never do for themselves because they're too busy making the store run. And so if you're in a really good franchise system and you're paying those fees and in exchange you get really good, valuable support, that's great. You know, There are lots of franchise examples where people can do well. But if you're in a situation that you're working hard to send money up the pipe and nothing's coming down, and you're just lining the pockets of somebody else, that's when people get – to me, that's that's uh, not a situation anyone wants to be in, right?
3: How many times does a person have to do this dance before he finds out the information that you just shared?
1: Well, unfortunately – a lot of people, when they when they go out into the world, and they start talking about franchises. Uh, one of the problems is that everyone's got their hand in the cookie jar, as I like to say. So, one of the one of the common features of a franchise is that you pay a franchise fee, an initial payment, to get the systems and license the trademark and all that kind of stuff. That's what they tell you. But if you think about it the systems and the policies and procedures, all that kind of stuff. Well, that fits in a book, right? And you can go buy books for 10 or $20, right? I can go to Kinko's and they'll photocopy a book for me for, you know, $20 or less. Right. So what that franchise fee actually is, is the cost of selling the franchise to you. You see the, the, there's a series of franchise brokers out there and there are business brokers. And even within the franchise company itself, they've got salespeople who are trying to recruit new people into the franchise network. And all those people need to be paid. And the way that they're paid is through the franchise fee. So when I was a business broker, I sold a brand new franchise to someone and they paid a $50,000 franchise fee. And 30000 of that came right back to me. That was my commission for, for finding someone to sign up into their network. And if you imagine a franchise company where there's a department of three or four people that are constantly flying around the country to go to these business expos and whatnot, and those three or four people are professional people. They need to earn good money, right? So that department probably costs half a million dollars a year. If they're out there selling, you know, 20 new units a year, they've got to bring in from those franchise fees enough money to cover the cost of that marketing and sales expense. So, you know, that's, that's another little insight from the industry that of course you're not going to see or hear from anyone else because all the other people who talk about franchises are getting a slice of that pie they're getting rewarded for finding someone to get in line and sign up for these deals.
3: Right. <laughs> well, they, well, they have to eat too.
1: <laughs> well, and it's true. And, and you know what? Like I said, again, if the franchise company is providing good value, then there's an opportunity for both parties, but it's doing a proper due diligence. And, and so what I advise in the book, for example, is that, You got to get face to face with existing franchisees. You can't write to them on email, you can't talk to them on the phone. You gotta get in the car and you gotta do a road trip. You gotta go visit other people face to face and you gotta see what their situation really is, and you gotta ask them questions about how they get along with the head office, and you gotta ask them questions about, you know, everything that's being promised to you by the head office, does it really get delivered? Right? How, how do people interact with these regional managers and all this kind of thing? And most people, even if they're not happy in the franchise, they may not be so honest with you or, or, or so straightforward over the phone or in writing on the internet, right? But face-to-face it's easy for people to see you as another living, breathing human being, right? And if the other franchisees you go and meet really do have regrets about getting involved and they really have problems about how it's run. You will feel it from them. And so that, that is the way you, you figure out if it's a good system or not is you go out and you stand face to face with other people who've already stepped through that doorway or stepped across that line, however you want to see it
3: that's a simple method, but I see how important it could be when you hear it straight from the horse's mouth What's what's going on. uh, (laughs) Was that straight to no chaser, as they say?
1: Yeah. It's, you know, franchises are highly, highly regulated by a lot of governments around the world. Like most states have rules about what has to be disclosed to someone before they buy a franchise. I was working with a client of mine who was looking at buying a a little bakery franchise. And one of the rules was as far as disclosure is the financial statements of the parent company had to be included in the disclosure package. And I told the client, I said that I want to see that, send me a copy. And he didn't understand why the financial, um, Condition of the franchisor was important. He said, "Don't they just collect like uh, collect a royalty?" And here, here was here's the situation, Lamont. In this particular franchise, in order for them to really control their franchisees, what the franchise company does is they lease all the locations, and then they sublet them to their franchisees. Okay, so, right. so, so when we looked at the financial statements of the franchise company. What we saw is that they had several years of losses. They obviously were having problems. And when we looked into the notes of the financial statements, we found that they were making big payments to landlords. Why? Because of failing closing locations. So somebody would buy a franchise and they would fail. Well, guess what? The franchise company was the actual tenant. So the landlord would sue them. Right. because of the balance of the lease. So right. what I showed to my client is I said, it said, if these guys go bankrupt under the lease for your location, it says if the tenant goes bankrupt, the lease is null and void. I said, if you buy this franchise and these other guys go bankrupt, guess what? You just made an investment in a business you no longer have a lease for. And the landlord can come to you and say, hey, I know that you'd probably like to continue your business here, here's a new lease, by the way, I know that you don't have to pay royalties anymore. So we're going to increase the rent. Wow. So I had, I had, so I basically had a conversation with my client's lawyer and I said, look, we have to get the landlord to agree that if the franchise company goes bankrupt, that the lease will automatically transfer to this gentleman so that he's protected and you know, try getting the franchise company to agree to that. It, it, was, it was so bad, Lamont, that the ad fund, we also got financial statements for the ad fund, and the advertising fund was investing in loans to the franchisor. So they were, they were running short of money in, the, in their franchise company, and what they were doing was borrowing money from the advertising fund. Now, that money is supposed to be spent on television commercials to, to increase the brand, but instead they were lending it to the operating company. And so when I showed all this stuff to my client, I said, look, this is what's actually happening with this money. I think he made the right decision, and he decided not to move forward with the deal
3: taking advertising money, loaning that away, which is ultimately hurting the brand in the long run because they don't have the dollars to advertise.
1: Yeah, and they were loaning it away to themselves because they control both sides. Wow. Right and on. and so when, when most people who look at getting into business, they say, gee, business is risky. Maybe I should do a franchise because there's going to be less risk. There are often people who don't have a lot of business experience and they get into these agreements without understanding how these things are going to play out. And when I was a broker, I saw it So, so many different examples like this and, and I decided I have to let people know. And that's why I wrote the book franchise warnings, just so that people have a better understanding. They can be more informed. And when they read those contracts, they can they can get a better understanding of what is actually going to play out when these things happen in the contract.
3: Wow, this is so powerful. This is so powerful stuff, David. I mean, people really, really should go pick up uh, that book. And that's what I meant by the question I asked earlier, how many times did people have to do this dance before they really learned the rules to this game. But you, you're putting it out there for people to have knowledge and information. I just learned a tremendous amount from you just briefly about franchise and stuff that I didn't know. And I hope our listeners had got it.
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, basically my, my practice, my, my area of expertise It's I help people buy and sell businesses and I work with people all over, okay. um, you know, right now I'm working with people in California and Texas and, and up in Canada as well. And when there's somebody who's going to buy a business, often when they, they find a business they want to buy, what they'll do is they'll ask me to help them examine and analyze the opportunity. And so I can give them feedback and advice on whether I think the business is overpriced or, or how much I really think the business is worth. And then I coach them through the negotiation so to help advise them on what kind of offer they should be making and, and how to respond to the different counter offers from, from the seller. And then likewise, I also work with sellers who have a need to move on from their business and I help them get their business ready for sale. It's, it's funny when, um, when I was a business broker, I would work with a lot of sellers who had reached a point of burnout, Lamont. They were just tired They hadn't been able to take a vacation in a long time. They were working long hours. And I see this over and over and over again. It gets back to the point I made earlier about the people starting a business who are technicians. They know how to do the work, so they decide to start a business. And you end up with those burnt-out business owners when you don't have the proper policies and procedures and business systems in place. One of, the, one of the biggest differences that I've found between small businesses and large businesses is that in small businesses, the owners will typically delegate tasks to their employees. Like they'll say, you know, I'd like you to stock this shelf or I'd like you to sweep that floor. In big businesses, managers delegate responsibility to employees. So they say, you are in charge of managing this inventory or you are responsible for how the front of the store looks. And you can only delegate responsibility when you have properly defined roles and, you know, job descriptions and this kind of thing. So when I was a business broker, people would come to me who were facing burnout and they would say, I need to sell my business because, you know, I fear for my health and, and all this kind of thing. And I would work with them on doing these policies and procedures and things. And, and some of them would then withdraw from wanting to sell because once they had spent some effort to create a more formalized and properly organized business, the pressure started to fall away. You know, the, the demands and, and the requirement to work so many hours would start to right. disappear. And, and so uh, recently last fall, I put together a new workshop called building a business that people will want to buy And that's one of my latest new things that's just been released as an online course. So if you do have some business owners out there, even if they're not interested in selling their business today, they should certainly check that out because it can help them make their business more profitable, easier to run, more pleasant. And when the need does arise, it'll make the business easier to sell. You know, if you don't have all of your systems in place as a business owner, the only person who can come along and buy it and run the business is someone who's just like you that has exactly the same experience. But if you have everything documented, everything written down, then anyone can come in and see that they're able to run the business. And that is a page out of the franchise book, right? Because that's what the franchise guys are always talking about. They have the systems, the operating manuals, the policies, the procedures, that allow anyone to run a particular kind of business and that kind of thing isn't just for franchises people on their own should be doing that in their own business every day
3: it makes a lot of sense too because you can't operate with a weak structure and I understand that a lot
1: yeah exactly and and you know That's why you get these business owners who've been working hard for 10 years or more that haven't been able to take two-week vacations because they're running everything in their head. They don't have things documented and written down. And when you don't have things documented and written down, that's also when employees can't really be held accountable to certain standards because there's nothing to reference. So you work hard in your business giving good customer service, doing things a certain way. And if your employees don't do it exactly the same way that you do, maybe then, you know, customers feel dissatisfied. They didn't get the right level of service or the, you know, the job wasn't done the right way and you're never able to grow the business. And, and the reason that people are able to build wealth in businesses is because you are able to leverage the effort of other people. When my friend who owns the Mr. Rooter franchise When he sends someone out on a plumbing job, he charges the customer more than what it costs him to pay the plumber. Right. And that is leveraging the value or leveraging the effort of other people, in this case, an employee in order to get ahead and earn more for yourself. And the value that the business owner delivers is by making the service easily accessible to the public. So, we've all had an experience where you call that plumber and he promises to show up and he never does. Right. And he says he's going to be (laughs) there on Thursday and he doesn't show up. All right. So, so the the one-off guys who are driving around on their own, trying to manage their own show, like most of them earn what they would earn if they worked for somebody else. And the big businesses are able to generate a profit because people are willing to pay them more Because the bigger businesses, because they're better organized, better structured, policies, procedures, are actually able to deliver customer wants, which is to have the plumber show up when they say he's going to show up,
3: right? (laughs) With a truck that don't break down before you get to the house.
1: (laughs) Right. And if he needs a a little 90-degree copper angle, he's going to have one in the truck, right? Right. Because it's properly stocked and inventoried and all that kind of stuff. And he doesn't have to get you to pay for an hour of his time to run over to the supply shop to pick up a $2 part.
3: Mm-hmm. Got one more for you quickly, David. I know uh, what is the end game of any business outside of what I think is the obvious, but what, what would you say?
1: Well, it. it You know, the question brings up a great whole topic because I always tell people that they should be thinking about how they're going to get out of a business before they ever get into one, either starting it or buying it. Because if you have an idea of what you're going to do at the end, it's going to help shape your decisions as you move through. And unfortunately, most people, they get into business or they buy a business because they need an income and all they focus on is the income. And maybe they run their business in a certain way and they do their bookkeeping in a certain way that helps them, you know, earn the most money, but it means that the business doesn't look so great on paper. And then when something happens and they need to sell, it's more difficult to sell because of the way they've been representing things on the books. So I always say to people, if you're constantly thinking about the end, you're going to make better decisions along the way, and it's going to make that transition into whatever that end game is more feasible and quicker. And time is usually the biggest problem. It's usually when a seller needs to sell, they need to sell quickly. And so if the business is always in a condition where it can be sold, it can be sold more quickly. The business is not you. You are not the business. The business is, is an asset that you own and its job is to create a cash flow for you. And, you know, the downside to business, the downside to leveraging the effort of others is when the business isn't managed properly and the sales aren't there. And all of a sudden, instead of those employees helping to contribute to the bottom line, the employees start to drain or other parts of the overhead start to drain you. And, When the business isn't working, when the asset isn't producing the cash flow, that's when you have to make hard decisions. And you either have to figure out how you're going to fix that money-making machine so that it actually puts money in your pocket, or you got to kill it and move on. And so often I run into people who they they internalize the business. They, They feel like it's a part of themselves. And they think that if they close down the business, everyone's going to think that they are a failure. And what ends up happening is too long, and they David, end up wanna, weakening themselves.
3: I don't want to interrupt you, man, but we got like a minute left to the show, and I want you to tell yeah. everybody where they're going to get your books quickly. I'm sorry, man, but I want you to get that in yeah, no so they can go get your books. Go for it.
1: Yeah. Well, if you go to davidcbarnett.com, that's my main blog site. You've got access there to over 300 posts about Buying, Selling, and Managing Businesses, and there's access there to the YouTube channel, which has over 200 videos. And my books are all available on Amazon as well. And if you go to davidcbarnett.com, I've got a little tab there for Amazon Store. You can see my books as well as all the other books I have a lot of respect for. I've got them all listed out there on one page. People can easily access.
3: And I want to thank you so much, man. You gave us a wealth of information. And for the listeners that joined us late, You'll be able to hear this show in its entirety in, its few, in a few seconds. As soon as we off the air, you can hear it from the beginning. And I urge you to do so, and please go pick up those books. I just learned a whole lot of stuff, and I'm sure you would too. And thanks again, David. We appreciate you ever, ever so much. Thanks,
1: Lamont. Have a great day.
3: All right, you too. Thank you, sir. I'm back, you guys, next week, same time, 2.30.
2: So my job takes me all around the world. All I see the first admit that I've had the fun with some of the prettiest girls. But temptation gets strong sometimes, but if it lasts too long.